starting my sixth decade of endurance racing and one thing I come across quite often is athletes saying you know my training was spot on I did everything right and a lot of times I'll look at their training and they did do it correctly I mean that's a rarity because I find over the six decades that most people don't train and then just kind of wing it and so whatever results they get are the results they get but I do feel bad for people who definitely put some thought into their training and get the same result over and over a result that they don't want mainly blowing up having some physical issues be it nausea uh you know leg cramps pains foot care uh and nothing's you know because structural issues happen from time to time bad knee or something you can't you know do anything about that you got to stop it's a structural injury but you know just those soft tissue type of things that you know you wonder why they keep happening and why it keeps happening is that little tiny things make a big problems in little tiny percentages add up that's why las vegas is so uh, you know it does so well how do you think they keep the lights on or anything it's because the house has a tiny percentage but that tiny percentage makes billions of dollars well your racing is the same way you're in fact i think it almost hurts people who are well prepared um you know uh recently zach bitter who's got the world record 100 the 12 hour wanted to do an entire 24 and he just trained a little bit too much and got toasted you know nothing is zach i really like him but you know just that kind of thing but also just when you're racing something and you train well you get there you're excited and you go just a second or two a mile too fast or you stay on a pace a little too long or anything like that it builds up and then it just comes cascading down along your head all over you and what you've got to do is you just got to monitor things and hold back i mean that's why most world records in all sports endurance sports swimming running you know all come with negative splits or at least even splits you know you can't hold on and so it's just those little things make such a big difference um i think one of the issues people do have too is especially newer athletes that i come across jump into the sport later in life and maybe don't understand that but also they didn't come up through the system with coaching and competition and that's one of the big huge things is i meet so many people who are doing their a marathon or a ultra and i'll be like hey what's your 10k time and like oh i've never run one i just my first race was a marathon and what it is is you come up through the system like i did you know running a mile back when i was 16 those are less little experiments that you can control and repeatable so you can learn there of your ways uh, the great bill schultz multi-day racer six day also ran across the country he always says every race is like a mile four laps and the problem is if you put all your eggs in your big basket you know a marathon or whatever is big to you you know that's a big huge experiment with a lot of time invested and it can blow up in your face spectacularly you know you're handling like you know nuclear materials where if you run like mile races or 5ks um you can it's like you know doing a you know one of those volcanoes with the baking soda and vinegar you know it's not going to be you know catastrophic if you fail and you try new things 
So I'm trying to say is when you do the smaller, shorter races, like myself, I still do 5Ks and things, you learn just those little tricks and you learn where those percentages just lie so that you don't go out in that 5K, blast through the first mile and then suffer the consequences, even though the consequences are a lot smaller than they are in big events. So that's what I'm trying to say is you've got to do experiments granted this year with COVID. You don't get to race as much, but do time trials. You want to make your training miserable. Like right now I'm beat up and tired. So that when you're in a race, you're like, oh yeah, I've been here before. You, you know, and the worst thing you want to do is you don't want to be a practice pony. You want to be a race day horse. So as always, stay healthy, be boring, not epic. At the end of day one of the 2014 across your six day race, Joe Fijis and Giannis Kuros were tied basically 136 miles. They had been going back and forth throughout the first 24 hours. Joe took a break. He did a 153 lap at nine o'clock, whereas Kuros really hadn't stopped. Of course, uh, Joe was doing, you know, you can look down, look at my past things and he's doing like 10, 11 minute miles. Kuros is doing a minute or two a mile slower. I myself got to 68 and had taken a break when I got to um, the uh, 24 hour period. Um, tried to take another break. I took a break when I got to 50 also. So what ends up happening is um, Kuros pretty much never takes a break. I look in here and in the first 48 hours, you know, Joe took a, had a 153 lap. That's an hour, 53 minutes. Then at um, 33 hours, he had an hour and 45 minutes. So he went another nine hours. Then at 37 hours into the race, he took an hour and 20 minutes. And then 42 hours, he went, took another hour and 20 minutes. So almost like every four or five hours, he was taking a break. Uh, Kuros's only break in the first 48 hours was um, a 34-minute lap at hour 43, and then he followed it up with a 41-minute lap. Not really sure what was going on during that time. I was out there, especially during the daytime, just kind of on sleep mode. But at night, that's when I kind of did more faster pace because there was less traffic, cold weather, and I just kind of saved myself for the nights. And so on day two, I saw more and more of Kuros in terms of him not lapping me, but me, me and him getting closer and closer to actually doing similar splits. He's, like I said, now was doing, um, you know, 16, 17 minute pace in those last hours. So that final night, and then you can definitely see like uh, uh, after that, he was doing my kind of pace, you know, 18, 19, 17, 18 minute mile pace. Um, it was, uh, yeah, so it was just totally two different strategies. Kuros was also just staying out there a long time, as I was just saying, you know, he doesn't take anything of a, any more of a break throughout that first 48 hours, and which is pretty phenomenal. He just, he was so determined. You definitely wanted to win. Um, <clears throat> uh, and if you look at it, they hit 200 miles. Uh, Joe did it in 43 hours. Kuros did it in 44. So they were still pretty close. Now, you know, they did 136 in the first, um, uh, 24 hours so they only you know they only did about maybe i mean if it's a 4 30 in the morning they you know they didn't at 40 30 hours maybe they did um 215 miles or so which would have won the 48 hour race john olson ended up winning with 200 infamously kelly agnew uh won with 201 but he was later disqualified because they caught him teaching teaching che cheating and so all his races so 
Um, interesting. So they probably did maybe another 70 miles on day two. So they had a significant drop off. And, you know, day two is tough. I had a similar kind of an experience. My day one of 68 miles was good. Might have been a little bit too aggressive. Um, and I kind of paid for it because definitely on the next 24 hours, I took quite a number of breaks. Um, I took, uh, you know, uh, three hours and 55 minutes right after I got to 100, which was just under 36 hours. That break, I remember finishing and just not really doing so well. And then I took another break a few laps later. I just couldn't get moving. I ended up taking a four hour. So in day two, I ended up, you know, having two laps that took me eight hours. So you definitely basically seven hours off the track. Didn't really sleep a lot. Um, first night out there, of course, um, didn't sleep very much. It was cold and kind of noisy. By the second night, I completely abandoned the tents. The tents were nice in terms of hanging out in there with the tall ones, but the bigger the tent, the harder it is to keep warm. And it was really cold in there. And so from after the first night, I kind of switched up my sleeping. Um, there was a heated tent that the runners were kind of hanging out in. The first night, I was like party central, so I rarely went in there. But by the second night, it had kind of cleared out, plus I was kind of tired. So I kind of commandeered a little corner space, put my sleeping mat in there. And when I was tired, I would go in there because at least it was warm because it was just so, so cold. And so I'd go in there, put my feet up on a chair, and maybe close my eyes for a few minutes. Now, if you look at Kuros's splits, of course, they're very consistent. And one of the advantages he had over other people in the race, obviously, Joe had a great handler, Mike, and, uh, you know, giving him splits and handing him whatever he needed, along with lots of other people at the race, because there are a lot of East Coast faction. And Joe is from the East Coast, Georgia. And, you know, of course, everybody wanted him to do well against Kuros. Kuros had a couple of handlers, crew, and he was kind of, everybody kind of infamously said how he would be barking orders to them and telling them what to do. But so it's kind of nice that, you know, you can just roll along and tell them one lap, tell them what you need, and then get it. And, uh, of course, when they change in clothes and stuff, they had it all laid out for him. I myself, you know, took the bus there. Um, didn't have anybody helping me. So... Whenever I had to do anything, I had to go in and do it on my own. And, you know, it just takes up time. And so that's kind of why they were so consistent. Another big issue I had on day two was um, I, you know, the course was very dusty and dirty. In later years, they actually even got a water truck and they would water down the course from time to time. It was also pretty hard. I mean, this, but, uh, you know, the ground was. And so, you know, Kuros had complained about the dust. He was actually wearing gaiters during the race which I think was a bit of an overkill, but the dust was definitely an issue for breathing and stuff, and it just got all over you, and then I think I went and ran a little too hard, and so you got a combination of sweat and dust is never a good thing. I usually have a pretty good uh, job with chafing and stuff, but you know, you're just still going to get it. Um, the gear I wear, I've been wearing for years, and it pretty much works pretty well. So by day two, though, I started having some major chafing issues, and they were not fun. My shaving, especially on my legs, made it so that, like, you're, uh, you know, it's like when you have shaving and you don't really know it and you get in the shower and you have that terrible sting for a few seconds. Well, I had that for hours and hours and it's by myself, so I didn't really have any special ointments or creams and things like that. Um, there's no real running water on the premises. There's one bathroom off the course, you know, not too far off that had hot water and stuff. 
But later on, I found out and I went and used the showers every day. But then again, the showers um, that's at the Dodger training facility and being a big baseball fan as a kid, you know, it's like pretty cool to be in the locker room of Major League Baseball. And I'll talk about those later. But so on day two, here I am kind of a hot mess and have no way to take care of myself. Um, thankfully, I, uh, the gesture was there and his great crew, his wife, uh, Martha, um, had some ointment and stuff and kind of worked, took care of it. And then I also, you know, did a little sink bath in that, uh, at the facility. And so that's why I ended up after on day two, I did 114 miles. So I did 68 the first day and only like 46 miles on day two. And that was not, you know, I wasn't too happy with that. You know, I kind of wanted to get 300 and it's kind of sad to get that so little, but you know, I did take seven hours off and I was having all kinds of issues. But by the following morning, I found I kind of gotten things dialed in. I remember day two, too. Um, I've never done anything. Well, I've always, you know, the couple hundreds I'd finished up to then were in like the 28 to 38 hour range. So I was used to going for 30 hours, seeing the second morning, but doing the whole um, uh, going the rest of the day. I'm usually, you know, you start at seven in the morning on day one and finish at 10 the next day. And I remember on day two, um, just mentally kind of out of it while I was taking a break I of course uh, stopped by the timing station and Jamil Curry who's the RD and owner of Air Vipa um, I got to talking to him and telling him how man I was just having a hard time on day two and he said well you know it's kind of like when you do long backpacking experiences it's the same kind of issues he says you know day one you're all excited gun-ho to be getting out there on the trail but then day two sinks in and you're just kind of like, oh, man, this is just going to be brutal. And and then, you know, you have to come to terms with that. And then he says, you know, days three and four, it's just whatever the, you know, the the trail is your home and you get used to it. But day one, you're excited. Day two, you're missing your old life. You're missing the normality of it. And, you know, multi-day races are super weird. All you're doing all day is just going around and around a looped course. All you're going to do is you're just walking and running all day, all night. And that's kind of the reason why, like, I just finished up, well, today's day six of my second one of uh, six days in the home. And, you know, that's why, you know, the first time I did it, I did two 111 miles. This time I only went 100. But it's just too hard because you've got the real world. You have all these distractions and you just don't have the motivation, especially when you don't have other like-minded people going around and around with you. So day two, I had to really get to the term to grips that, like, hey, this is my new world. This is my reality. And with that, I was really glad that Jamil told me that because then I was able to just you kind of just grow to accept it, saying, you know, the next X amount of days, hours, this is my world, and I chose to do this, and I'm fortunate enough to be able to do it, you know, in many ways. You know, it's not everyone can take so much time off from friends, family, work, and all that and go around and around for six days trying to do as many miles as possible. To wrap up day two of the six days with Giannis Kuros, first day was awesome just watching him and joe flying around five miles an hour or faster lapping me almost every lap uh the second night things got a little more interesting people start to slow down the field starts to thin out it's still really cold at night i finally figured out my sleeping situation wasn't sleeping much but at least uh, i had some big issues on tuesday uh obviously that not tuesday but just that second day and then of course at the end of the second day 
you know, on the first day, they had Joe and Giannis were at 136 miles, and I was at 68. So they basically had doubled my mileage. Now they were at like 205 or so. I don't have the exact stats. And I was at 114. So I'd made up some ground on them, and then I was going to get to spend quite a bit more time with Kuros in the upcoming days. I'm starting my sixth decade of endurance training by going blind. I shut off my devices so that I can't see what I'm up to. I mean, I'm always gonna keep tracking them, but I decided and I went out and did a 10K and actually tried to run it. So, you know, I started running in 79 and when I ran in the 70s and 80s, it was all about seeing how fast I could go. The past decade, the teens, was about how far I could go. Obviously in 2019, I hit that and just started falling apart. So on to new challenges. So in 1979, I got sick of tires sitting on benches playing team sports, walked off the baseball field, joined the track team, broke five minutes for the mile. Then in 1980, ran my first marathon, heartbreakingly ran 301, just cratered classic mile 2021. 20, Actually had stomach issues, not leg issues. Then my senior year, went to Lompoc, ran 255, ran high school cross country and two years of high school, uh, cross country in college and uh 1982 san diego ran my best marathon 250 and that qualified me for boston kind of going through this history because now i might be able to break six hours but the goal is to run in boston i mean i was 1982 i was 19 i didn't have the money to go i should have went um six year old has to run 350 which is crazy fast someone as big as me. I mean, when I ran 250, I was probably at 150, 160 pounds. Now I'm at 250 and uh, I think I gotta get down about 190 to have a shot. So who knows? Had the congestive heart failure diagnosis back in April, but you know, you gotta have a goal. I'm not gonna plan on running any marathons. I'm just gonna work on the half marathons. And when the Jack Daniels numbers line up, I mean, I gotta run like about a 150 half to have any shot at the, uh, 350 so it's gonna be a long process but something different I need a new goal and it should be good times and of course always follow my old rules you know uh, stay healthy be boring not epic the past decade was about how far and I think I got as far as I could go and so the 20s are going to be about how fast as I said in a previous video planning on trying to qualify for the Boston Marathon. Sure, it's a crazy dream, but I did it in 1982 when I ran 250 in San Diego. And today when I was kind of looking over my half-ass internet research, I noticed that, you know, obviously my 55 to 59, I got to run 335, which isn't going to happen. But when I turn 60, I've got to do 350, which is still pretty fast. But I just sort of noticed that the race is always in April. It's on Patriots Day and I'm born in May, so unfortunately, I have an extra year, or fortunately, have an extra year to keep working because obviously I'm not gonna get 335, and I turned 50, I'll turn 60 after the race. So, looks like I've got more time to prepare. It's interesting seeing that and um, thinking about the Malcolm Gladwell book where he opens the book with the uh, hockey players, the hockey all-star players or something like that, and it has, you know, their name, where they're born, their height, their weight, and date of birth, and he asked the reader, do you notice anything uh, unusual? 
And of course, it turns out that all those hockey players are born in the first few months of the year because hockey there, you play by how old you are on January 1st. And so if you're born January, February, March, you're a lot older and poor kids that are born in November, December. So that's kind of the way they do it with uh, a lot of youth leagues, obviously, and school and stuff like that. But I get it that most races, I don't know why I didn't think otherwise, that obviously the um, uh, marathon, Boston Marathon would be how old you were on the day of the race. I know when I went and did the race for ages, it's in September and you get a year for your age. So when I went, I did 50, I was 55. So I got 55 hours. And I remember a friend of mine, their birthday was right at the end of August. So they always get an extra year every year. So just kind of the luck of the draw when it comes to birthdays. So today was a good day in terms of, I went out and did a 10K after putting in almost 115 miles this week because I finished up my six days in the home with like 107 miles in six days. But I was real happy with getting 100 miles in a little over 100 hours. And I'm pretty surprised how well my legs feel. So that's the plan for now. And as always, stay healthy, be boring, not epic. Now in the mid 2000s, I had closed up my record store in 2006. I was doing fully online, selling on eBay as a power seller. Then I got into playing poker professionally on Poker Stars, Ultimate Bet, and all those websites. In fact, there's a great uh, documentary on YouTube about Ultimate Bet and how people could see people's whole cards and were cheating people. Um, and then, of course, they closed all that down. But after doing eBay business and playing poker a lot, it was great with the kids at home because I could play and still keep an eye on them. But I got bigger and bigger and I got to almost 300 pounds. And then I decided probably 2006, 2007 that I needed to cut back and figure out what's going on. So I did a low-carb diet and got down to um, my fighting weight where I'm about up 250. And I've been 250 for, you know, since 2008 or so, 2009. So over a decade, tried everything under the sun. Um, and, you know, probably the one thing that worked the best was the vegan diet where I got down to 230 and did a 219 half marathon <clears throat> and of course you know my goal of trying to go to boston sometime after i'm 60 i definitely gonna have to get below 200 pounds because it's just physics f equals ma you gotta have if you got a big m you gotta have a lot of a big mass a lot of acceleration so the vegan thing kind of worked but then after a year or so on it um, i just had no red blood cells went up the mountains and just you know if i had the time and money and expertise it might be able to do it um, i saw this article in outside magazine it says what happens to runners on a ketogenic diet and that's one of the other ones I tried a couple years ago. And um, it, uh, you know, it was not too difficult to do. I mean, I lost, a, I maybe got down to 240 on it, um, you know, and just your, and a lot of ultra runners are trying to do it. I know Zach Bitter is one who was a proponent of it. And, you know, it becomes a better fat burner. But it was interesting in this article, they did, you know, tests. Of course, it only had maybe half a dozen 10 guys in it but they basically found out that speeds faster than 70 percent vo2 max well below marathon pace efficiency was significantly impaired on a ketogenic diet at speeds slower than 60 percent of vo2 max efficiency was unchanged right at 70 percent vo2 max time to exhaustion was unchanged on average but the individual results in the graph above um, show a nuanced picture and so basically what it's saying is um what i kind of found you know if you're doing ultras and you're doing like multi-day ultras or um, a lot of, you know, multi-day backpacking, you know, getting keto adapted fat burning would definitely work. It makes sense just evolutionary wise that uh, it would be an efficient source if you just got to be walking for days on end. But if you've got to get moving quick and chase down something to eat, 
um, you're going to have to get a little, go buy, you know, you're going to have to have some carbos. And it basically says that one of the things they sh showed was that um, you definitely um, lose out. So like, you know, if you, it says uh, efficiency test, there was no difference between the diets at lower speeds corresponding to below above about 60% of the O2 max. So, you know, like a walking pace or maybe an ultra pace, you know, and, but once the pace picked up above 70%, the runners on the ketogenic diet became significantly less efficient. They needed more oxygen and more energy to sustain a given pace. Their VO2 max itself, that is the maximum amount of oxygen they could use per minute, stayed at the same on both diets, but the speed they could run at while consuming that oxygen was lower on the ketogenic diet. And so that's kind of what you're, you know, just makes sense. You know, when times are tough and you can burn your body fat and even the skinniest person's got tons of it on them, but you're just not going to be going fast. And so kind of the bottom line is if you're trying to run, you know, marathons and under, you've got to have some carbs. You just can't keep it up. And it says, interesting, this echoes the uh, Kieran Clark's uh, co-developer keto ketone ester drink sold by AVMN told me last year, as soon as you're up to 75% of your maximum workload, I wouldn't even go near a ketone. So what's the verdict? The statistical analysis tells us that time to exhaustion was similar in both conditions and the variations, you know, depend on the person. But basically it's saying that, you got to have some carbs if you want to be an endurance athlete, unless, you know, your plan is, you know, to hike long distances or do really, really long races. Uh, the ketogenic diet, I tried it, um, and uh, it just doesn't – there's better ways to kind of be more fat efficient. And I think what I've been doing now with doing the intermediate diet, I've been doing the 16 hours off, 8 hours on. And I actually had a streak of 46 days where I stuck to that, where I was eating – only eight hour chunks at most. Um, but then I kind of broke it because when I was doing the six days in the home, I just needed to have some fuel to get me through the, the miles and the daily grind. But now I'm back on it and starting up another uh, streak. Kind of wanted to get to 50, but I kind of knew that I'd probably have to eat something because it's bonking pretty hard. So my normal day is like, um, you know, I get up. Um, well, I usually stop eating at four o'clock. I come out and train in the evening, and then I get up in the morning and go out at 6, train for a couple hours, and then I don't eat again until so 4, 8, uh, you know, like 10 o'clock in the morning, you know, 16 hours off, 8 hours on. Does that make sense? No, 8. Yeah, if you stop at 4, you get to eat again at 8, which you know, I finish up my workouts around 8, 30, 9 o'clock. And I have been able to, like, my weight was getting up about to like 265, in September, especially after I got done doing the race across Tennessee and back across Tennessee and some other issues. Um, and then so I definitely was like, up, oh, I got to ratchet this down. And so I'm like around 255 now and hopefully, you know, lose a pound or two a week and that would work out great. Um, so I'll put this in the show notes and the title is what happens to runners on a ketogenic diet. Welcome to Endurance News and Random Musings. It is January 3rd, 2021, Sunday night, and um, not a whole lot going on in the running endurance world, but there was some good news at least. U.S. Olympian Brendan Martinez tested positive for banned substance, something hydrochlorothiazine in September tests. However, they determined it must have been tested by her without fault or negligence. She will not face any suspension as a result. You know, and she's been an Olympian for us and medaled at the World Championships. And one of the things they talked about in the article, USADA was talking about WADA, which is the world officials, is how, you know, it's kind of like 
um, guilty and guilty until proven innocent, and that um, you know you get these t uh, positive tests and they throw your name out immediately and kind of taint you with it. And, you know, you know, they do have to do, I guess, do this drug testing, but it seems to be a little heavy-handed, and it was interesting the USDA actually said that it was quite heavy-handed and that there's been far too many of these things. And I often say that, you know, one of the biggest problems that individual endurance athletes have in sports, um, be it swimming, uh, cycling, running and stuff like that is it sounds like you know especially like track and field and cycling it's just such a dirty sport that's all you hear about is drugs drugs and drugs and people getting busted for it and i have to tell you like i just spent sunday watching the red zone on nfl and if you think that those guys aren't using drugs performance dancing and drugs you're out of your mind and same thing with the nba and all our major sports i'm sure soccer's the same way um, you know, the athletes are using and doing whatever they can get away with. And I mean, even in track and field the Olympics, they have that temporary usage thing. And I remember watching cross country skiing one time and it was like 90% of the athletes were on, you know, asthma medications and things like that because you can get away with it. And so, you know, the whole drug thing is kind of difficult to get away with. But the main thing is, is that endurance athletes need to have a union. Um, I mean, I know everyone gets all up in the arms about Lance Armstrong, you know, but he did what he had to do because everybody else was doing it. And he still, you know, stayed on the damn bike for seven years in a row, which is not, you know, drugs going to keep you on the bike. But he says often that, you know, they need to unionize. And the reason why the Major League Sports don't have such a drug issue is they have drugs, but they have a strong players union and they regulate how they're going to get tested and how it's going to get reported. And that's why you don't see the NFL and the NBA and all and Major League Baseball in the news all the time. I mean, my gosh, Major League Baseball had that huge steroid thing, but I'm sure it was even far worse. But, you know, it just gives cycling and running a black eye because it's so much. But it, what it is is that the athletes just have no power. And, you know, and, you know, people often say, well, you know, people get paid for what they're worth and that's definitely true but i think with the you know the olympics you have to look at like track and field and swimming and cycling well cycling has been a professional sport for a long time but you know swimming and and track and field you know until the mid 80s the olympic committee wanted you to be an amateur now you know eastern bloc countries and people like that they basically you know put them in the army or something and they competed but american athletes in the 70s like steve Pron Fontaine and Frank Shorter tried to start professional track and field, and they've met a lot of opposite, uh, gosh, I can't speak, opposition, and they, you know, ended up threatening their careers. And of course, there's lots of under the table type of stuff, kind of like how we have with our college athletics now, which is a whole other thing. I mean, but what it is is that players need to get players, athletes need to unionize so they can have labor contracts because you know what, the Olympics and world championships, there's a lot of people making a lot of money off these athletes and very few of the athletes get very much out of it. There's an excellent podcast uh, documentary actually on HBO with um, Michael Phelps narrating it and talking about our Olympians and a lot of the sports that aren't major sports and how difficult it is on them and how hard it is to get by and a lot of the mental issues that they're having. And, you know, I'm sure poor Brenda, I follow her on Instagram. She's a California gal. She's up in Big Bear Lake training hard. And I'm sure this was just traumatic and terrible for her having to deal with this, you know, and, you know, major league kind of sports guys, you know, they got lawyers and union and they can help defend them, but she's probably just hanging in the wind. So I'm glad that she's been cleared, but I'm sure she's put through a lot of stress and it's kind of uncalled for. So who knows? Someday maybe we will actually get um, some kind of, uh, you know, 
union and it's like even lance armstrong was talking about with cycling is that you're you know the sport's never going to grow because yeah you have all these sponsors that sponsor teams but then the problem is when the team the sponsor decides not to sponsor team anymore what do you have but you know maybe a bunch of bikes and a tour van or a tour bus you don't have much and they need to make it like franchises like you have with major league sports you know you have the dallas cowboys or you have you know um the LA Lakers and that's what they kind of need to do and I think with running we could do that too you know the endurance um, community <clears throat> you know you have Hoke Up and Flagstaff you have Nike projects you have ASICS teams I think these teams you know it's great that the sponsors are sponsoring them but I think they need to develop a league and then you can have franchises and the same kind of thing and then you know you can negotiate contracts for the athletes to come to the races and that's another big thing you know obviously 2020 um, then people have been asking, will running survive, especially the elite running? Is it just kind of something that like not big deal? You know, when you have the L.A. Marathon, you got 25,000 people running. And um, so they're bringing in a lot of money. I mean, you do 25,000 times 200 bucks and that's a big bad. That's a big chunk of change. And then, of course, all the money that the races are bringing in for hotels and um, yeah, I'm doing the math here real quick. Yeah, it's $5 million in entry fees that the LA Marathon brings in, and they don't hand out a whole lot of money for the winners, and mostly it's the East Africans that come because the Americans are like, eh, it's not a whole lot of money. So I think a lot of people are getting the short end of the stick, so hopefully that will change. Now on to something a little bit more better. You know, it's a new year, and everybody's got new ideas and new motivations. And, of course, as I say, motivation is not worth a whole lot. It's better to just get routines. And some of the things I saw on Twitter, and you can in the show notes, there's a link to my Twitter, which you can follow. But it says, it's like a Zen Kona. The first rule of routines is develop one and stick with it. The second rule is to cultivate the capacity to easily release from it. Yep, and that's definitely the case. Life can often get in the way of your training, but I encourage you to prioritize your workouts. Most of us find that if we get in our exercise, everything else in life is better, so be disciplined to get in your workouts. And instead of discipline, just make up a routine. I highly recommend training in the mornings. And then, you know, bonus plan, you can work out in the evenings. Almost everyone over the past, you know, six decades that have been training, always most of the people who are successful at it train in the mornings. And then if they can do a little bit more later on, that's great. Um, someone on Twitter named C Brown Run says, runners who make it a regular part of their life talk little about discipline and more about how much they appreciate the chance to escape and to experience the world on their run each day. And you should think of it at that. Don't think of it as a drudgery. I mean, if running is a drudgery, don't do it. There's plenty of other sports you can pick up on. Um, speaking of things that I've been working on a lot the past year, especially, don't skip on prehab, core strength, mobility routines. A little prehab goes a long way to keeping your health, keep you healthy and fit. And that's Craig McMillan talking about that. And I've definitely been doing that. Um, you know, the other day when I was door dashing, I got all the way, I had to climb up these big old staircase, got to the guy's door, tripped, but I was able to, because I've been doing so much of the, you know, kettlebell and burpees and things like that, that I felt semi-gracefully and didn't get hurt. So you should definitely do that. Um, someday we'll be able to go out and do more things with people. And one of the things is if you're kind of tired of packed trails and parking lots and you want to go out hiking and see the mountains, try going out at night. It's uh, definitely something that 
I've done in the past. It's funny when I was working with a lot of ultra runners and they were going to do their first like hundred mile races. It was amazing how so many of them hadn't really ever gone out running at night, maybe around their neighborhoods, but definitely not in the woods. And I'd often be like, well, let's go. And it would be interesting how definitely people were spooked about being out there by themselves. So you know, you need to definitely practice it. And the best way to practice it, if you're looking to do 100 someday yourself, is to crew and pace so you can do it with someone else. Um, last thing here on Endurance News, the big race that was happening, and I guess it always happens on January 2nd and 3rd. It's a two-day event, the Hakan Aikiden, which is a five-person relay in Japan. It's been going on for 97 years. And um, they definitely, it's an amazing, amazing race. Um, they're talking about the 97th year. And um, it's a two-day stage race from uh, Onomachi to Hakan and back. It's separated into five legs on each day. And due to slight variations, of course, the first day is 107 kilometers. You know, so that's about 65 miles. And the second day is 109 kilometers. So each athlete runs about a half a marathon. And I guess this year it was some pretty spectacular um, last-second win with a, um, just seconds apart. Yeah, some guy, one guy overcame a 3-minute and 19-second gap in the last 23K to get his win for the Soka University. And that's what this race is. It's a race with all the uh, colleges, the big-time colleges. So it's kind of like if you had the SEC going against the uh, Pac-12 in a big, big race, two-day event. And like I've talked about before, Japanese marathoning. You know, now Americans, maybe there's, like, there used to be like 21 Americans had broken 210 and then we had a few the other day a weekend or two ago so maybe we're up, still less than 30 where the Japanese have over 120 and of course they were also giving out that almost million dollar prize to any Japanese man or woman who broke the Japanese record and last year one of the men I think he did it twice so he took home a cool two million dollars so kind of goes hand in hand with the whole thing I was talking about that athletes need to get a union and um, I think you know, hopefully those days will come. So this was Endurance News and Random Musings for January 3rd, 2021. I was slow this morning, but the 60-minute run felt pretty good, especially since I did 117 miles last week, part of the six days in the home, and then yesterday I put in some mileage. So the running is going well in terms of my legs feel good. Super slow, but that's so well. So got done with that, did 60 minutes, and then I went out and door dashed. Uh, they must not have any drivers because they're giving $4 bonuses. So I did three orders and made 50 bucks and said, see ya. Of course, I had to have one bad order in terms of gated communities. And, you know, they don't give you the code and the code doesn't work. And then the lady's like, it's in the uh, description. And no, it's not. And of course, when I drove up and saw the signs in our lawn, it's kind of said it all alternative facts, you know. And then I had to go somewhere I usually dread more than the dentist and you can tell I don't go to the dentist very often, or buying a car to the phone store, the AT&T store, it's usually a nightmare. I actually had an appointment, there was nobody there, got in. I could have probably done it online, but I wanted to see what the new phones look like. And so, of course, I had to order one, so I'm gonna get the Apple 12 Pro, it's supposed to have a better camera, so we shall see how that works. So in a few weeks, my video quality might be a little bit better here on uh, the internet. Um, this afternoon, I'm going to do the 30-minute workout, and then it's an even day, I believe. So I'll be doing some kettlebell routine. I'm going to stick with that cross training. It's definitely been helping me. And the goal is to, uh, 
get faster and see how fast I can get. I've got a long way to go. Let's look at the Boston qualifying times. And an 80-year-old has to do a 450 marathon, which maybe I could do now. So I'm not are you faster than an 80-year-old. I don't think so yet. But of course, the Boston Marathon qualifying times are kind of, um, you know, uh, weight uh, bias because, you know, I mean, if you weigh a certain amount, you know, I mean, you know, marathon running is all physics. F equals MA. You got a big M, you got to have a lot of A. And so I know guys who are 200 pounds built like Greek gods and they can't run a 305 marathon. You just can't move that fast. So that means I'm going to have to slim down. So I'm going to keep on the fasting thing, keep on the training, and hopefully we'll get some results. It's January 5th, 2021, and now for some endurance news and random musings. Jonathan Galt says Kyle Merber, who spent the last several years with Hoka New York Track Club, says he's not done running. I'm just done getting paid for it. Real runners don't retire. I'm really rearranging priorities, and I know how that is for myself. I'm going from how far to how fast. The Antarctica report, didn't know there was such a thing, but Outside Magazine retweeted, says, First the South Pole by motor vehicles on this day in 1958, Ed Hillary and team became only the third expedition after Edmondson Scott to reach the South Pole by an overland route. Driving Ferguson tractors, they dropped supplies for Commonwealth Trans Antarctic Expedition. So he summited Everest and then was down the South Pole. Sounds like that's what many people sort of do. Um, Rich Gonzalez from Prefcal Track. Uh, posted about the Newberry Park cross-country coach Sean Brosen um, is uh, featured this week on their YouTube uh, show where they're talking about uh, uh, words of wisdom regarding the success of the national championship program. So I'd highly recommend watching that and the whole series documenting the 2019 cross-country uh, championship season with them, Newberry Park and Great Oak. It was really good. Um, Outside Magazine uh, talking about diets and whatnot, and I definitely am trying to do that myself. It's been going on for years and years, of course, but uh, their com comments were prioritize unprocessed foods, which I try to do, but it's difficult because just trying to go shopping all the time, especially in this day and age, is difficult. Abandon diets and labels. Let go of food guilt. Uh, definitely got to try to do that. Approach supplements and superfoods with skepticism. I've always done that because there is no magic bullet. You've always got to pay the piper. It doesn't matter if there's a yin and a yang and do what works for you, which I haven't really found. And then, of course, they also say, if you're thinking about starting a diet, don't. We made it believe that diets fail because we lack willpower discipline. But research has shown that the odds are stacked against a person trying to lose weight through dietary restriction. Um, myself, I've can do it for a while and then it always fades uh, Jonathan Galt also wrote some more news about professional runners um, interesting situation here Norton Sojourn Moan who's run a 205.48 which would be about the fastest American Galen Rupp's around there he ran for Nike he now signed with Daily, Daily Sportswear led by cross country ski legend Bjorn Daly oh gosh I used to watch him I used to love watching him in fact I really like to be able to cross country ski but Obviously, Bakersfield, it's snowed here once in the past. Uh, I've lived here 40 years, it's snowed once. Um, we do have uh, Mount Pinos, which has cross-country trails, but over the past years, there hasn't been any snow. Though we have had some snow, so I'd love to do it. Cross-country skied a few times, really enjoyed it. But anyways, he has a uh, clothing line, and this guy got signed to it. And it's interesting. He says, the catch, they don't make shoes, so he has set aside 40,000 Norwegian krone, about 4,700 per year, to buy shoes. Yeah, that's about right, you know. 
I don't know. I, buy, I go through about a pair a month, but I buy mine on uh, eBay nowadays, so I can get them for. I buy some used pairs, sometimes some new pairs, and then uh, last little thing, because obviously this time of year is not a whole lot of um, uh, endurance news, but um, a new study shows that marathoners run one to two percent faster in super shoes, and women benefit more than men. And it was interesting. I posted that on Instagram, and some people were commenting on it. And uh, yeah, I looked into it. And, you know, obviously. The men's world record in the marathon was broken by Kachogi in 2018, and Bridget Koskai broke the women's record. And then this year, people have been crushing the half marathon world record over and over. So the shoes definitely help. Speaking of, uh, you know, Winter Olympics, it's kind of like when they came out with those clapper skates. I don't know what the official name is for speed skating, and all the records got broke. Um, they had it with swimming with the suits, which, uh, you know, they look like they're wearing total wetsuits. And then they invalidated those records. So we shall see. It's an ongoing issue in the endurance world, especially in running lately. A new 10-year study confirms super shoe effect. A research group, including well-known marathon experts Annie Jones and Michael Joyner, along with Sandra Hunter, found that marathoners run 1% to 2% faster in the super shoes and men benefited men. Women benefited more than men in the analysis of four world majors. Um, this isn't actually a sex-based finding, but nonetheless impacts race results in marathon statistics, which are, of course, grouped by male and female categories. And what they wanted to find out was if elite marathon times improved dramatically in 2019, which was the first year that the Nike's, Nike Vaporfly 4% were widely available. And to do this, they collected results from the top 50 male and female finishers at the Boston, London, Chicago, and New York City marathons. And what was interesting is back uh, last year, I have to say that now, in 2020, at the Olympic trials, um, Nike actually offered and gave every athlete who qualified a pair of their latest uh, Nike fast shoes. And quite a few athletes took them up on it. So it's definitely the case with these things. It says <clears throat> that you know they did the top 50 from these races for 10 years, and that gave them 3,900 data points as there was no New York City Marathon in 2012 due to this Hurricane Sandy. Remarkably, they were able to identify the shoes worn by 3,886 uh, 3, of the 3,900 runners. Wow. They found out except for 14 people. And <clears throat> what the results showed was uh, strong stability of performance through 2018. Runners apparently weren't training harder or more efficiently developing new genes or racing in faster shoes. The top 50 men in the four majors had an average time of 221.18, the top 50 women had an average time of 243.24. Then came 2019 and the Nike Super Shoes, and the average top 50 times dropped to 218.30, <clears throat> which is significantly, you know, it's almost three minutes, and 239.06 for the women, which is almost four minutes, over four minutes. This represented a 2% improvement for men and 2.6% improvement for women. More telling, the researchers were able to do a subset analysis of runners completing the same marathon in 2018 and 2019, first in a non-Nike shoe, then in a Nike shoe. In other words, the runners switched from a traditional racing flat to new Nike super shoe, but raced the same course. They reviewed, picked up 239 runners, including 101 women. The men got faster by 1 minute 12 seconds, and the women by 3 minutes 42. These improvements represented percentage gains of for the men of 0.86% and 1.6% for the women. <clears throat> and, of course, now, in fact, just recently at the uh, World Half, not the World Half Marathon, World Record was broken in the Half Marathon, and all those athletes were wearing Adidas. So it sounds seems like Adidas has got their shoe going. And, in fact, at the Marathon Project, even though the guys ran for 
um, a different company. They were owned by Adidas and Adidas, and so they wore Adidas. And so you might be wondering why are women benefiting from the shoes more than men? And it says why do and it's not um, not you can't say for sure, but exercise physiologist researcher Shayla Kipp, who is also a steeplechaser at the 2012 Olympics, looked into this question several years ago while studying at the University of Colorado. She found two theoretical reasons why slower runners might gain more from super shoes. <clears throat> one related to the connection between running economy and oxygen consumption. Um, that's definitely one. And then the other to the well-established fact that faster moving objects, cars, cyclists, even runners encounter more air resistance than slower objects. And, you know, with the marathon now and half marathon under an hour, you know, 13 miles an hour, get on a bicycle, you're moving. You definitely got some air resistance. It says as an individual runs faster, the energy cost of overcoming air resistance increases more than proportionally, proportional to velocity cubed to be exact, says Kip who's currently working on his PhD at University of British Columbia. It's likely that women are benefiting more from the same percentage improvement in running economy as men, about 4% if they're in the Vaporfly, since they run at slightly slower speeds. Thus, it's not your sex that gives you more gain from the new shoes. It's simply your average pace before you slip on the shoes. Slower men would get a bigger boost from these shoes than faster men. Since elite women are about 10% slower than elite men, they gain more than elite men. In New York Times Big Data, dive into Nike shoes also reveal that slower runners improve slightly Slightly more fat than faster runners. And I know at Judgment Day here in Bakersfield back a month or so ago, one of the first races we've had in Bakersfield, I think it was the first half marathon since COVID hit in March, um, I saw quite a few people with the Super Shoes, Nikes. And um, yeah, as I've talked about before, last decade was about how far. This decade is about how fast. And so I'm definitely going to be looking into getting Super Shoes. Um, not sure about Nike. My problem is I've gotten used so used to the Hocus, not Hocus, Hell Ultras, that I like the wide toe box, and so I've got to find a shoe. Uh, possibly you might check out the Hocus, but hopefully um, Ultra is going to do it. But I'm not sure how they're going to do it because they're all about a zero drop, and these shoes definitely have a stack height. Um, and so it's interesting. Kachogi ran 159.40 in Vienna in October 2019. His performance produced worldwide headlines because he broke an impossible barrier the sub two hour. However, mere hours later in Chicago, Bridget Koskai ran a world record 214.04 and impressed many running fans even more than Kachogi's effort. Since Paul Reichlis record 215.25 set in 20, 2003 had long seemed untouchable, Kasagi's race alerted the running world to the coming wave of fast women. And it was definitely interesting. I remember you know, watching Kipchoge do that and then just her out of nowhere just crushed that, and it was pretty impressive. It says, over the last two years running a new ASIC Super Shoes, U.S. Marathon star Sarah Hall has improved from 226.20 to 220.32 marathon. That's a leap forward, about 4% for Hall. And it says that research has shown that there is substantial range of performance improvement among runners in new shoes. That is, some runners improve more than others, depending on their individual stride and characteristics of and other factors, like anything else. I know, like, when I was doing triathlons, I, you know, was a jack of all trades, master of none. I won the Bakersfield Triathlon. I did really well at early triathlons, but then technology came in. And, you know, I was a really good swimmer, and so the, the wetsuit really didn't help me. But what really killed me was when the uh, aero bars came. I could ride a twenty, the 40K bike in a little over an hour, um, got the bars and improved very little because I'm not very flexible, so I couldn't really hold the position. But I was already pretty aero where other people got the bars and just crushed it. It says the new report on the four majors, marathon majors, likely agrees with the other investigators, including Nike researchers, have found a laboratory trials. Yes, the super shoes might improve running economy up to 4%, hence the name Nike's favorite fly 4%, but that's not the same as saying you'll run 4% faster. 
most studies have rated the speed improvement at one to four, two point five percent. It's however more than enough to get runners to lace up the new footwear. And the last major, major marathon investigated the New York twenty nineteen, fully seventy percent of the elite athletes were running in Nike Super shoes. And so you might say, why are these shoes so fast? And according to the new paper, there are three likely reasons that these shoes are faster than earlier racing shoes: the curved carbon, the curved carbon fiber plates a lighter, more responsive midsole material, and thicker midsoles. Research included, our findings indicate that the, that the appropriately 4% reduced energetic cost of running observed in laboratory settings translates to real but lesser improvements in the real world racing situations. And yeah, that's one of the things too they talk about is that just these shoes save your legs so you're not quite so beat up on it and that's going to make you run a better race but also recover quicker. And that might be why you're seeing athletes put in uh, more performances. I mean, like Sarah Hall ran London and, you know, broke her PR. And then, like, uh, that was, you know, September. And then, like, in December, she came back and broke it again in uh, the marathon project. So the shoes not only help you run faster, but I think they also save your legs. Um, the last part of this article says that it's not peer-reviewed peer or published by a traditional scientific journal, but they did want to get the information out. And you, there's a full text document where you can check it out yourself and i will put this in the show notes so it looks like uh the super shoes are here to stay i know that the uh governing bodies have tried to make some rules and regulations um, to level the playing field there and uh hopefully that will be the case and i think it'll be going the way of like the clapper skate i've got to figure out what the official term is but the clapper skate that came into speed skating many olympics ago and it broke all the records and then it's here to stay the not so new rules of healthy eating is an article in outside magazine by christina bernard came out 2019 and obviously these aren't not new rules because uh you know humans have been around in fact i just googled it and humans have been around for 200,000 years in our modern form so somehow we made it this far without all the fancy things that they talk about so you know, all the fad diets that don't work, superfoods that aren't magic. Healthy eating looks different for everyone. And obviously, because you've got cultures all around the world who eat completely different than one another, and we all manage to get to where we're at. But with modern society, I'm sure it's kind of causing issues. And you've seen that, that, you know, indigenous cultures around the world were doing just fine. And then when uh, they became civilized, quote unquote, um, that's when they had issues with, because, you know, they just developed being able to survive on what was around them. So, it's um, you know, definitely an issue, and if you're on Instagram or any of the social media, it's constantly people obsessing about how they look and their weight, but also plenty of people coming out and saying how they've had issues with food throughout their lives, and it's not just men. I mean, not just women, but also men. So one of the keys is prioritize unprocessed foods. The key recommendations of most recent guidelines are to eat plenty of fruits, vegetables, legumes, whole grains, lean proteins, nuts, and seeds. Um, Food activist and author Michael Pollan famously simplified these principles further. Eat food, not too much, mostly plants. And, you know, that would be awesome if our world, you know, was so much easier. I mean, like, you know, if you drive around town, you know, all the fast food places have these incredible deals. Like yesterday, you know, you could go to Jack in the Box or you go to Burger King and things like that. And you get, you know, two sausage croissants with egg for $4, you know, but, you know, there's nobody selling, you know, vegetables and fruits especially in lower income areas so it's not, it's not easy to follow these rules 
Then it says, Whole Foods have stood the test of time and repeatedly been shown to be healthy. And, well, yep, that's because humans have been around for 200,000 years, and that's all we had for the longest time until you know, foods came processed. And it just says that when foods are processed, they're generally stripped of important micronutrients as well as fiber. At the same time, sugar, salt, and fat are added to them to make them taste better and go down easier. So these foods are less nutritious, and we tend to eat them in larger quantities. And it's interesting. I've heard um, people talking about um, her hereditary wheat or old wheat, that if you use that to make pastas and breads, that people with issues with you know, uh, gluten don't have them because uh, you know the modern wheat is just not so good for you. And so basically, you know, it says you don't need to avoid processed foods at all costs, but make them exception, not the rule. And I always come back to that whole 80-20. And it's something that I definitely need to work on along with doing my fasting thing. And I've been doing the fasting, but I also look at that because I think it's more of something that humans throughout the ages have been following. You know, we weren't eating around the clock, obviously. And um, so I think that's a way to go. You know, it says abandon diets and labels. <clears throat> And basically, it's shown that diets don't work long term. Um, they found that most people end up gaining the weight they lost, and that many diets end up actually leading to gain, gaining weight. Interesting here, it says diets are usually labor intensive and take a lot of money and or a lot of time, as uh, what one uh, guy showed. This isn't sustainable and doesn't leave people with skills they need to actually eat healthy. She recommends steering clear of any program that promises quick or easy weight loss. Ocar is a magic product or comes with a complicated set of guidelines or steps that must be strictly followed. And I've had this discussion with people in the past where they'll swear by something or this. And I'll say, well, if it worked, you know, we'd all look great. And the people who invented it or came up with the idea would be billionaires. And that isn't the case. And so it can't, it may work for you, but it doesn't necessarily work for everybody else. And it says, just because traditional diets don't work, doesn't mean there's no way to improve your relationship with food or no value in learning to eat in a way that makes you feel better. Um, some dietitians back in 1995 called came up with intuitive eating. Many others adopt the approach with their clients. The idea is to get in tune with your body's particular wants and needs when it comes to food and then use them to eat in a way that feels good to you. Even among dietitians who don't practice intuitive eating, many focus on implementing healthy behaviors, drinking more water, eating more fruits and vegetables, not always using food to cope with stress and emotions, including instead of prescribing diets. And yeah, I, I think I think that helps, obviously. And it says, let go of food go. Even the simple man to eat mostly whole foods can leave you feeling guilty if you slip up. It's easy to think of nutrient-dense whole foods as good and processed foods as bad, but moralizing food comes with its own set of risks. The way of thinking leads you to internalize, I'm eating a bad food, therefore I'm bad. It's, it's a really black or white way of thinking, but actually health and nutrition exist on a gradient. Truly healthy person... Someone who is flexible and realizes that no one food can make or break their health and that eating habits shouldn't shape their sense or wolf. And that's the same thing with my whole thing with, you know, be boring, not epic. It's, you know, not one workout or one week is going to make or break your training regime. You know, it's just being consistent, getting in a routine and doing the doing day in, day out. So eating well is about long-term habits, not individual food choices. And then, of course, this is another one, approach supplements and superfoods with skepticism. There are some cases where supplementation is appropriate, if like having iron deficiency or things like that. But apart from that, most people are overdoing it with supplementation. And it was interesting, you know, obviously nutrients fall into two categories, water-soluble and fat-soluble. You can't overdose on water-soluble like vitamin C and B since the body gets rid of it. But fat-soluble like vitamin 
E and D get stored in fat tissue, so eating them and thus storing them in excess can negatively impact bodily functions. So watch out for that. And then, of course, superfood supplements, which my social media feeds are full of. It says skip them. People are so quick to supplement with whatever snake oil someone's trying to sell. They're often harmless, sometimes have a placebo effect, but sometimes they can be dangerous and risky, and a lot of times you have no idea what you're in there. It says you're better off eating more fruits and vegetables because they are known to have high antioxidants, biologically accessible, and full of great nutrients without the additives. And so basically the article comes down to do what works with you because, you know, there are 7 billion plus or more of us out there, and you've got to figure out what works for you. I know myself forever it's been happening that way too. I am actually at a healthy weight at 250, but <clears throat> to <coughs> go faster, <coughs> it is physics. So not sure what I'm going to do in terms of my goals. I really wish that someday we would have weight classes in running because, you know, certain people, it is physics and F equals MA. So if you've got a big M, mass, you got to have a lot of acceleration. So <coughs> as always, stay healthy, be boring, not epic, except on race day. <laughs>